Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem amongst those who call on this name? Amen. Amen. We're looking, as you can see, at the power of Jesus in the book of Acts, and we're going to see that power come today through the conversion of the Pharisee Saul, also known later as Paul, so don't be surprised if I get the two names mixed up and use them interchangeably as we go. Saul's story here in Acts is the second in a string of four consecutive conversion stories. We saw one last week, we'll see another one next week, but today again there's the conversion of the Pharisee named Saul. Now right away some of you may have gotten nervous when you heard the word conversion, especially if you brought a friend today or if you are the friend someone has brought today. You think, man, do people really need to be converted? You know, are they going to try to convert me? here at this church, because our culture asks today, well, what's wrong with people just how they are? There's nothing wrong with anyone we say. We think it's offensive. If and when Christians say people need to be converted or the goal of the church is about converting people. We ask, you know, wasn't Jesus all about love? And if that's you today, what you need to hear is that it's not so much Christians who have said people need to be converted. It was Jesus himself Jesus himself and Matthew said, I tell you the truth, unless you are converted, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's the case, if that's the case, 
and it is. I want to look at the question from the passage. Ask this question today. What does it look like to be converted to faith in Jesus? What does it look like to become a Christian? All right. Now, before I go any further, let me just say that, you know, on one hand, it's a bit dangerous to compare conversion stories because there are so many different ways, unique ways, even in the Bible that God draws people to himself. But Saul's story here isn't just a one unique way. Saul's story, there I did it already. Saul's story is crucial for us to understand because later in his life, in one of his letters called First Timothy, Saul and Paul himself, looking back on his story, he said, all that God did in my life, he did it so it could be, he called it a pattern for you to look at. Paul said, my conversion was a pattern of how God works in the human heart. It's amazing. So let's ask again, what does it look like to be converted to faith in Jesus? From this passage, we're going to see three things. At first, it means to ask a question. Second, it means to be asked a question. And finally, it means to find a true calling. Let's begin at number one and see what the question is. Uh, Saul here, as you can see, he's on his way to a place called Damascus. And you can see he's knocked to the ground. There's a light that says from heaven that flashes around him. Well, what's happening? Well, what's happening is that God is literally shining a divine spotlight into Saul's life and forcing Saul to ask and to face a single question. When he's on the ground, here's the question Saul asks. Saul asks, who are you, Lord? That's amazing because this is someone who didn't just grow up in the church, you know, grew up in a pew, so to speak. This isn't just someone who like majored in world religions or philosophy or theology or something. This is someone who built the pew, who taught the class, who like wrote the book, so to speak, because as a Pharisee, Saul would have been the one to teach the people who God is. And yet here at this moment on the ground, he asks, who are you, Lord? Who is God really? Why is he asking this? Well, he's beginning to be converted. Why? Well, Saul here has come face to face with truth. That's what's happening. Saul has actually come face to face with truth because, you know, it's one thing to imagine what God is, right? One thing to imagine what spiritual reality is. It's another thing altogether to come face to face with a power greater than yourself, Because when you come face to face with real truth, real truth, what something really is, it just shatters all your categories of what you thought it was. One way that even many people from a Christian background, for example, imagine God is, they imagine God is like the cosmic rule keeper. Like he's just the one who wants us all the time. His whole function is just to make sure we obey the rules or he gets real mad about that. Is that who God is? Well, on one hand, obeying the rules is important, right? Because at a certain point, if you just reject all laws, right? Reject all moral laws, all physical laws. If you say, man, I just got to do me, you know, take care of me. Not obeying the laws will literally kill you if for no other reason than you ignored the law of gravity after climbing up to a certain height. 
But if you're here and you think that you, you, you were raised to think that, that, that God or church or faith was just all about keeping the rules and being a good person, it just shows you've never really met the one true God. You say, well, how can I say that? Well, the answer to that question, and the reason I can say that is, Think, think, think about who this person is in the story. Paul was the ultimate good person, the ultimate rule keeper, the ultimate nice guy on one hand. And yet later on, he wrote that again, he was faultless when it came to keeping the rules. And here though, yet he just shows all his rule keeping had really just kept him from knowing God. The author, writer Flannery O'Connor, uh, Flannery O'Connor wrote a number of short stories, and uh, she wrote them primarily about Pharisee-type people. She's brilliant, actually, and uh, one of her characters in one of her stories called Wise Blood, one of her characters was, was, a, was a guy named Hazel Motes. Hazel Motes, and Hazel Motes, she says, she wrote about him, Hazel Motes had a deep, black, wordless conviction that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin, what does she mean? Oh, she meant that for Hazel Motes, keeping the rules, being a good person was what he used to justify being able to stay away from God. Uh, my wife Carrie was having a conversation recently with a friend of ours, someone we had just uh, been beginning to know, and the conversation was going fine until he found out that I do what I do. <laughs> and then, of course, whenever you find out, if I, if I get to know you, you find out what I do, then it's just like game on for you. You know, all your, your, whatever you think about pastors or churches or that uncle you had who was like a deacon uh, in the Baptist church growing up, I found out about that guy. Anyway, he, the, the guy said to Carrie, oh, your husband's a pastor. That, what? That's nice. Is that like a preacher? And she says, well, that's part of what he does. And she said, uh, he said, well, I don't believe in all that stuff. Fine if you go. I just try to be a good person. All right. And, you know, let me just ask you, how do you know, though, if you are a good person? Because no one ever says, does you ever say, I'm a bad person? No, because we always compare ourselves to someone like Hitler or that jerk at the office, but we never compare ourselves to someone like Mother Teresa or that guy at the office who's always helping the homeless or doing the drive for the needy or something like that. See, but what Paul is realizing here finally, and what you should realize, is that you will never find God through just being a good person alone. Paul was the definition of a good person in his culture, but when he came face to face with the truth itself, Paul found out his personal goodness. Being a good person had nothing to do with actually knowing who God was. Who are you, God? He asked. Who is this God who won't accept good people just like they are? Whew. That's one way our categories can get shattered when we meet the true God, but there's another way our culture gives us to think about God, and it's not through keeping the rules, it's through avoiding the rules. Another way of putting it would be this. If Paul believed in a God of only law, our culture today believes in a God of only love. Only love. It sort of goes like this. We say, if there is a God, he's a God of love who just loves me how I am. No questions asked. Don't open that closet door back there. Right. And of course, our secular culture today goes a step further and says, there isn't really a God at all. The way people think about God 
is just a projection of culture. Individual cultures just make up what they think God really is. But hang on a second, because if that's true, catch this, and secular culture says on one hand that all cultures just make up what they think God is, and then it says on the other hand, there isn't really a God at all, wouldn't that mean secular culture just made up how it thinks about God? Wouldn't the idea that there is no God, there is no God, or if it exists, he just accepts everyone, be just another cultural projection? Because we're a culture that just likes tolerance, and we projected that on God. See, what if saying there is no God, or if there is a God, he just accepts everyone like they are, was just another way human beings have made God in their own image? See, the first sign you're beginning to be converted is that you don't assume you know who God is. You don't assume that there either isn't a God or if there is a God, he just, you know, he's whatever you want him to be. One of the signs the real God is moving into your life is that you ask, not what do I think? Not what does my professor think? Not what does the pastor think? But who are you, Lord? Who are you, God? I want to know the truth. And to the question, who is God? The stunning answer comes to Paul and to you like this. He gets an answer. The answer is, the words come and say, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. See, the first sign you're beginning to be converted into coming to know God is you just ask the question, not what do I think, but who are you, God? Number two. Number two. It's not just to ask a question. Another sign of conversion. The pattern is you're also asked a question. You'll be asked a question. Because Paul doesn't just ask a question here. Paul's also asked a question he must answer. Let's see what it is. So Paul is told by Jesus personally, Jesus says, I am God, and then Paul is plunged into darkness. Why? Why the blindness? Why the darkness? What's so important about this? Well, on one hand, yeah, it could be said that, you know, Paul's being shown his true spiritual condition by his current physical condition. Sure, maybe Paul's getting launched, you know, like, you know, Paul Saul 2.0 here, something like that. But I think the darkness is really the mercy of Jesus to Saul in this moment because it's giving him time to answer a question that Jesus himself asks of Paul and of us. And here's the question we're asked. He asked Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? In other words, here's what he's being asked. He's asked, Saul, why? Why, 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 why? Are you doing what you're doing? See, Saul's being asked a motivational heart level question. And the question Jesus asks him here is a question I believe we are all asked in our life. Why do we live the way we live? What's driving us? And especially if you're here and there's some kind of brokenness in your life today, if there's some kind of habit or pattern of sin that you know is there, even though no one else would say, that's just fine, you know, but you know it's destroying your life, whether it's in your marriage or in your parenting or your job or some relationship, you need to be asked the question, why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you living how you live? And so by, by being plunged in the darkness for three days, Saul's being given time to answer this crucial 
heart-level motivational question. So let's ask, what did Paul find in the darkness? Hmm? What riddles in the dark did he find the answers to? Well, theologians say we can actually reconstruct a good bit of what went on in his mind through his later writings and his letters, the epistles, where we see Paul came to find at least two different answers to the question he's asked. Paul found he needed to discover two things to understand his life. First, he, uh, he came to understand that he really didn't understand the Bible. See, why was he living like he lived? Why did he persecute Christians? Why did he reject Jesus? Well, Paul saw, he came to see, he didn't really understand what the Bible was all about. In other words, he had to come to understand the Bible maybe didn't teach what he thought it did. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, Paul thought that the Old Testament taught that the Messiah would come in power, come in strength, defeat Israel's enemies like a warrior king. The Jews rejected Jesus, though, because Jesus came in weakness. He was hung on a cross. He was considered cursed by God. How could Jesus, someone in weakness, be the Messiah? Well, oh, but only if everything else in the Old Testament pointed to him as well like the whole sacrificial system. See, Saul came to realize, Paul came to realize, oh, those sacrifices pointed to Jesus. Jesus was the true, ultimate, final sacrificial lamb. See, that suffering servant in the book of Isaiah, that was Jesus too. Uh, The one who cried out to God, why have you forsaken me? In the Psalms, that was Jesus too. The, The Jews were, they still are offended at the thought that Jesus is a weak Messiah. What drove Paul to reject Jesus? Well, why did he reject Christianity? Paul rejected the Christian faith because he didn't understand what the Bible meant, what it was all about. Now, what about us? What about us today? I had a conversation with someone not too long ago about all the things that he didn't like about Christianity. And it was a long list. And maybe some of you have the same list as well. All the things that drove him away from the faith. And after about an hour of other objections, you know, science and so forth, he, he finally got down to the one that was at the bottom. And he asked me, with a bit of anger, he asked me, here's, I'm quoting as best I can, how can I be expected to believe in a God that teaches me to live like that? And by that, he meant specifically the lives and the people and the practices of the characters in the Old Testament. He said, look at all the rape in there. Look at all the incest. Look at all the polygamy, you know, bride price, stuff like that. You're telling me I'm supposed to live like that. Now, what do we say to that? What do we say to that? All right. A man by the name of Dr. Robert Alter is a professor at Cal Berkeley. And, uh, Dr. Alter is an expert in, in Jewish literature, Jewish culture, and he says this. He says there are two major institutions you see in ancient cultures that were universal across the board, every culture, Jewish and non-Jewish. First, he says there was polygamy, the practice of having multiple wives. And second, there was primogeniture. The belief that the firstborn son was the most important child got the bulk of the family's power and possessions. But Dr. Alter says, if you'll read the Bible closely, you'll see two things. Number one, in every generation, polygamy wreaks disaster. In every generation, everyone is devastated by its effects. Financially, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, psychologically, 
And number two, he says, when you come to primogeniture, you'll see the Bible points out God always favors who? The younger son above the older. It's always Abel the younger, never Cain the older. It's always Isaac the younger, not Ishmael. It's always Jacob the younger, never Esau. Oh, what's happening here? Though Alder says what's happening here is that these texts, the Bible, is actually subverting, trying to put an end to these cultural practices, not supporting them. No one ever says, yay, polygamy. Oh, it's great. You know, three wives, bring it on. No, it's always a disaster. It's like the, you know, the 80s after school special TV show. Some of you grew up in the 80s, right? It's like the episode they always had it where the character did drugs, right? Drugs is always bad. It never was, hey, this is a great thing. What's it showing you? What? Don't do drugs. What's the Bible saying? Don't do polygamy, right? Don't do primogeniture. The Bible never commands you to practice these things. It never paints a rosy picture of them. It always shows you the disaster of cultural practices outside the will of God. Now, as I've read this, I've seen that, I've gone back and reread the Bible, reread Genesis. I've loved Genesis because it's not trying to oppress women. It's actually trying to free them. It's not trying to keep the family, uh, sons, children down. It's trying to free children from these practices. Now, while Genesis is important, Christianity's claim that a relationship with Jesus is crucial. If you're here and you've let go of Christianity because of objections to the lives of characters you see in the Bible, when really you were misunderstanding them all along, what about other objections you may have to the Bible's content? Is it possible a wrong understanding of the Bible has driven you to reject Jesus just like it did for Paul. See, Paul saw he rejected Jesus because he misunderstood the Bible. Number two, Paul found out something else in the dark. He also came to see he had never really understood himself either. Because in the same way that Paul saw he never understood understood the Bible, he saw he had never really understood himself. And the reason this is crucial to grasp is because your understanding of who you are, what's down deep at the bottom, will drive your behavior throughout your whole life. Let me show you two verses that show Paul finally got what was driving him all along. And what's inside your heart today, too. And the first is in Romans 7. All right, Romans chapter 7. If you don't know it, I'll show it to you in a second. Many scholars believe Paul here in Romans 7. Romans 7 is basically the the rewind, the replay of the tape of what happened there in Damascus in the dark. This is complicated. Give me 60 seconds to unpack it. Romans 7 verse 8 says this. Paul writes, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the what? commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. What's he talking about? Oh, Paul is talking about one thing in particular. It's the 10th commandment. He references coveting. The 10th commandment says this, thou shalt not what? Covet. Yes. Thank you. He's saying he used to think he actually obeyed God's law until he grasped what the 10 commandment was all about. So why would he say the Ten Commandment was the, was the doozy of a commandment, commandment for him? It's because you can, more or less, you can obey the other nine commandments on the surface. Love the Lord my God, check, go to church, right? Did, didn't murder anybody today, you know, obey that one. You know, never stolen something, I'm obeying the law, but coveting, oh, 
That goes to the bottom of your heart. To not covet means you never wish anything about you were different. You never wish you had that body, that boyfriend, that house, that vacation, his health, her brains. You're totally fine with everything about you and everything that comes your way in life. But Paul says, he said, when I got to the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. He said, I saw what it meant. He said this, it killed me on the inside. Look at this, verse nine. He said, once I was alive apart from the law, when I didn't really get it, but when the commandment came, when I grasped the commandment, sin sprang to life and I died. He's saying, when I really understood the 10th commandment, it killed me because he saw he had been coveting something. What was Paul coveting? Oh, what was he trying to get that he didn't have? Here it is in a word, justification for his life justification for his existence. Paul came to see, he understood now that all of life apart from Jesus is just a life of coveting, trying to find something, trying to use something to justify your existence, trying to prove to everybody around you, you're a good person, you're a good boss, you're a good spouse, you're a good mom, you're a good somebody. And Paul saw he was trying to use, in his case, his own goodness and morality to prove it. But the human heart, you know, human heart can use anything to do that with chariots of fire you may know the movie stories told of two men who are running in the olympics one is a man by the name of eric little a christian who runs for god the other man is harold abrahams and abrahams finds out he's really running for himself before he runs the gold medal race abrahams in the movie asks this he says this he said now in one hour's time i'll be out there again i'll raise my eyes look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? Madonna said this in an interview in Vogue. She says, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm a somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. This is from Chinese world-famous acrobat. Here's a new name for you. Some of you maybe wrong news. She said, performing gives me a sense of what? Worthiness. And the list could go on. Let me ask you, why do you fall to pieces when you do in life? For many years, my wife and I, carry we sort of trade crash landings. How many of you are married and you know that? Like one of you goes through one thing, the other one goes through something else. In my case, if the church was doing well, I was fine. <laughs> when it wasn't, I'd crash. Now, fortunately, thankfully for me, Carrie is apparently a more noble person than I am. It was just here in church just for Jesus, you know, like we should all be, you know. So how the church is doing in her mind doesn't affect her at all. But when one of the kids would struggle and struggle and struggle, I can handle it. But it would floor her. See, what are we both doing? It's just, it's beyond caring about church or caring for the kids. Those things we processed as a referendum on who we were as human beings. Hey, which is why, hear me, many times being rich or successful or healthy or wealthy can be the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Because then your heart uses those things as a way to tell you, I'm fine, I'm good. Here's the reason I exist, or I'm a somebody. And then you mask what was driving you in the first place. 
Why do you, if this is you, why do you have to have, how do you have to be married to the point? Well, you'll abandon God's law and God's word. And what he says about who to marry, how to use sex, why would you abandon them? Why would you cheat in business? Why would you physically intimidate or threaten your spouse? You're threatened, many men are, because your wife threatens your self-image, which is that you're a good person. And when the truth comes in, you can't handle it. Why? Because you're trying to justify who you are. If you're here and you're in an extramarital affair today, or you're considering one, and statistics say that in a room this size, someone's in that place. Why is that? Well, because there's something in you. It's driving you to do that, right? To justify, feel good about being you, being alive, and justify doing it. See, Paul's blindness was the best thing that happened to him because it forced him to look down at the bottom of his heart. Why was he persecuting Christians? He was trying to prove, like Madonna was trying to prove, that he was a somebody good on his own. Oh, but I love this. What did Paul learn in the end? Here's what he came to see. It's beautiful. Paul wrote later on, he said, I care very little. If I'm judged by you or by any human court, indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. He came to see God was the judge and jury of his life. And if Jesus gave him a righteousness that was outside of himself, that was, that was from God alone, no one could take that away. Now, how did Paul get that in the end? Oh, it's here. It's because of the third and final mark of conversion in Paul's life. Third, now just to ask a question, not just to be asked a question, it's finally, ultimately, to find his true calling. Find a true calling. While Paul's blind in his house, God starts, because he'll do this to you, he'll start talking to someone else across town about you. Uh, There's a Christian named Ananias who was likely scattered to Damascus during the persecution back in Acts 7. And God tells Ananias to go and help his brother Saul. But of course, Ananias objects like you would because he says, basically, you want me to do what, God? I know you're like supposed to be omniscient and all, but you do know who this man is, right? I'm not going to go. Oh, but God says to him, you are going to go. Go, he said, this man is my what? Chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. (sighs) This is amazing. This word here for instrument is the word used for a piece of household art. It's something made on purpose to accomplish a certain task. So God is saying, listen to Ananias, I don't care how my man Saul looks on the outside right now. I don't care how, you know, as they say, tore up from the floor up he is. I know what's on the inside. I know what I've made him for. I'm calling him out of his petty low life of just being some religious enforcer somewhere. And I'm calling him up into the thing I have made him for. He is my work of art, made to speak to kings. But then God also says this. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What's Paul about to find out? He's about to find out what it means to really become a Christian. Here it is. To become a Christian is to find out that you were made for something far greater than you could have dreamed. And to become a Christian is to find out that what you were made for might not have been what you expected. If my dreams had come true, 
I wouldn't have been here with you today. (laughs) Full disclosure, I'd have been a professional baseball player somewhere. And when I became a Christian, sort of saw on a lower scale happened to me. I got converted. I met Jesus. I got benched. The girlfriend broke up with me. My teammates began to persecute me for my faith. But if all that had never happened, I never would have been here with you in this amazing place we call Mosaic Church. I found out that God, some of you found this out, that God had something far greater than I could have dreamed, but it wasn't what I expected. And I want to tell you, by the way, how crucial it is for you to keep these two verses together in your own thinking. It's such a balance because on one hand, this will keep you from being despondent when suffering comes, because when suffering comes, you can remember, God made me for something far greater than what I could have ever dreamed, but it also keeps us from an unhealthy American self-centered message of, oh, I was made to speak to kings, baby. And if I'm going to speak to kings, that probably means I'm supposed to get paid. You know, I need some bling if I'm going to see the king, right? That's what we think. So if I struggle at all, it can't possibly be God's will. See, we think greatness and suffering are opposite. So they can't go together. But God's saying about Paul, I'm going to take him higher than he thought he could go. And I'm going to take him lower than he ever thought he should go because he is my chosen work of art. I've got his true calling in my hand. You say, well, man, that makes me real nervous because that doesn't sound like freedom, baby. Freedom's my big deal. I could never handle being told what to do by a God. Freedom's living how I want. Nobody telling me what to do. You know, like, keep your laws off my body, God. Keep your hands off my life. Keep your laws off my life, God. But God here is saying, your life is in your own. Paul didn't make himself. You didn't make yourself either. God's saying, I've made you for a purpose here today. And like Saul, like Paul, you'll never find that true purpose until you come home to the Father's heart. Let me ask you, is a fish on your front lawn free? Is that fish free? You say, you say, no, it's not free. Well, why not? Maybe that fish wanted to flop out. Maybe he got sick and tired of being in that water. I mean, who's the water to tell him where a human being to tell him where to live? Maybe he should get out on the lawn. He'll flop around for a while. Why isn't the fish free? Well, because it's not in the environment it was made to swim in. Is it restrictive? To put the fish back into the narrow place of the water? Well, in a technical sense, yes. But in reality, no. What is it? It's liberating. Liberating. The right restrictions, the right limitations are liberating because they bring out the beauty of the fish. And that's why when you say to God, like Paul ultimately said, God, I'm yours exclusively. I was made not for me, but for you, God. When you do that, you are jumping back into the water. Your soul was made to swim in. Oh, but if you say anything else, a boyfriend, girlfriend, career, money. Oh, I, your political party, right? I was made for you first. You've got first dibs. You think you're choosing freedom, but in reality, you're just a fish gasping, flopping, dying in life. If you're here and you sense though, God is calling you to come and follow him like Saul or calling you to do something else, to lay down that hurt, lay down that relationship, take a risk somehow. Oh, think about, though, who is doing that asking today? 
Jesus never asks you to do something, anything he hasn't already done first. He never asked you to lay down something he hadn't laid down first. Think about this. I mean, he suffered infinitely. He has forgiven infinitely. He gave up heaven for you. Why can he ask Saul here to spend three days and nights in darkness? Because Jesus already spent three days and three nights in the ultimate darkness, paying the price to redeem humanity. Surely, surely he can ask Saul, us on a smaller scale, to be in darkness for him. Why did Jesus do this? So, because God so loved the world, he did it for love. And when you can see that, if you can see that this morning, the most free being in the world, Jesus, free being in the universe, when you see him losing it all for you, because of love, now you find a new calling, a true calling, living for him. See, saying Christianity is too narrow, Jesus is too restrictive, is like saying love is too narrow. Love is too restrictive. Oh, if Jesus has done all that for you today, you can trust him with your heart and life and career and relationships. Does a fish lose its freedom when it's put back in the water? Does the fish become less free or more? No, it becomes more. And to become a Christian, to follow Jesus, to choose him at every point in your life, no matter how challenging, is to be put back into the water. Our souls were made to swim in.